Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I, I must say I'm enjoying the occasion very much. Till, till now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the superorganism is an organism which consists of organisms. The concept was introduced by William Morton Wheeler in 1912. According to him and others, the extraordinary success of social insects such as ants, bees and termites is to be attributed to their genetic programming to act, not each in its own interest, but for the communal advantage of the colony. The colony itself is in effect the primary organism, in which the individual insects um, are organisms which function like cells or organs with various specialised functions. The queen with her reproductive function is in effect the genitals of the colony. Various worker castes of insects dedicated to foraging, building and so on correspond functionally to teeth, intestines and other body parts. Defensive castes of insects serve as the immune system. Communication among colony members corresponds to the nervous system and so on. In a highly controversial article, E.O. Wilson has argued that in evolutionary terms, it's the group, in this case the colony, rather than the individuals that evolves. In his eyes, the key evolutionary notion should be not the more widely favoured principle of kin selection, but group selection. One attraction that group selection holds out to its advocates is a moral one. In place of the selfish gene, it gives <coughs> evolutionary centrality to altruism in the form of an inclination to favour the, the common interest over one's own private interest. For some evolutionists, the superorganism has served as a model for understanding the evolution of human society too, and in particular for presenting individuals' altruism towards their social group as natural and genuine, not a disguised egoism. Why connect this theory with Empedocles? The impetus comes from the fact that Empedocles' own small but rightly celebrated anticipation of Darwinian natural selection seems to occur at a stage in the evolution of species when entities strikingly reminiscent of superorganisms were being compounded for the first time, since at that stage, according to Empedocles, simpler and more narrowly specialised organisms came together to form the complex, multitasking creatures that inhabit the Earth today. It's difficult to speak about the origin of species as explained by Empedocles without assuming one or another interpretation of his deeply controversial cosmic cycle. For present purposes, let me, by way of preface, simply state my own assumption that although there is one zoogony under love and another under strife, it's the zoogony under love, the one elaborately described by Empedocles, that's responsible for the broad run of species as we know them today. I believe the textual evidence for this is overwhelming, but I don't intend to argue the point here, as, as I have elsewhere, but simply to take it as read. To get started, consider the first part of Aetius's much-debated report on Empedocles' zoogony, uh, text 2 on the handout. I quote, Empedocles says that the first comings to be of animals and plants were by no means integral, but disjointed, with limbs not grown together. The second, when parts were growing together, were apparition-like. That is, the first living beings were isolated limbs and organs, and these combined to form fully self-sufficient organisms only in a second stage. Empedocles, in Lost Verses, referred to the first generation of primitive creatures as single-limbed. In text 4, Munomelae, and in text 6, Monoguia, can for linguistic and metrical reasons be assumed to be Empedocles' own characteristically coined compound adjectives. As these adjectives show, 
They were not, as some translators and commentators have rendered them, single limbs, i.e. a mere organ bank, but single-limbed animals and plants. Each, that is, was a whole organism, albeit with just one specialised function. As Empedocles writes in text 3, many heads sprang up neckless, while arms roamed around bereft of shoulders and eyes wandered alone, impoverished of foreheads. Rather than worry too much about just how these creatures managed to wander in advance of joining up with legs, feet, fins or wings, we can take the picturesque verb to wander as conveying three main points. First, it's Empedocles' way of assuring us that they were, in their primitive way, already autonomous organisms. Second, as text 5, which we'll come to later, will confirm, it emphasises how far they still were um, from forming coordinated, uh, from forming a coordinated structure. Third, um, however, we must assume that they did have to wander about um, in a fairly literal fashion as well, even if only by rolling, since only thus could they aspire to join up with others. There is no sign in our evidence that any external agent, such as love, stepped in to join them up. In mixing the four elements, and again in, in constructing eyes and other body parts, or as I would say primitive organisms, love is described as using glue, maybe I have to concede the glue to Anna, but I'll have the rivets even if I can't have the glue. Love is described as using um, possibly glue, definitely rivets, but there's, there's no word about any similar practice on the part of love in relation to joining the, the discrete limbs to each other. But these were, nevertheless, complete creatures, and not just a stock of components for future use, is further confirmed by Aetius in text 2, where he reports that these were the first animals and plants. I say this because in doing so, he's in fact omitting what we know to have been love's first merely preparatory zoogonic act, that is, her creation of basic biological components, which were included flesh in B96, bone in B98, and probably, to judge from B82, hair, feathers, leaves, scales, and other appendages. Thus, when Aetius li lists the single-limbed creatures as the first animals and plants, he means just that. Each was already a complete organism. A parenthetic word on the terminology of single-limbed is advisable here. Although the component nouns melos and guion, both meaning limb, are in Greek literature used that way almost exclusively in the plural, it's clear from these compound adjectives, uh, namely munomele and monoguia, that Empedocles really does operate with the concept of a singular melos or guion, a single limb. His frequent plural uses of these same nouns elsewhere can therefore well be understood as referring to sets of discrete limbs and need not be translated as they sometimes are, simply as the frame, meaning the whole body taken collectively without reference to component parts. When Empedocles speaks of limbs, as we'll see him doing, it seems, he really means discrete limbs. So back to the single limb creatures themselves. They had been meticulously designed and constructed by love for a wide variety of preconceived functions. The creatures wandering around in this primitive stage of zoogamy include, for example, solitary eyes without faces to belong to. We have in B84 a description of how love designed the eye, uh, and there she's compared to a lantern maker constructing a lantern for the preconceived purpose of lighting his way at night. Since we also learn that day-sighted and night-sighted eyes were differently constructed, we can be confident that the wandering eyes 
included at least both of these kinds, and no doubt many further varieties, presumably fish eyes, insect eyes, and so on, and maybe blue eyes and brown eyes as well, who knows. When Empedocles, in text 3, speaks of the eyes as impoverished of foreheads, um, the end of T3, metopo. there's no explicit indication that they themselves had some sort of desire to join up with other head parts, as there is as an explicit such indication in B21 about the element's desire to, to mix with each other. However, despite the lack of an explicit statement, Simplicius does interpret Empedocles that way in text 4, where he says, in this state, the limbs were still wandering about, being single-limbed, quoting Empedocles' word, as a result of strife separation, desiring to mix with each other, ephemina, desiring to mix with each other. And I, I'm in sympathy with those who translate penetuonta at the end of T3 as implying some kind of yearning, such as Bolac's translation, um, Enquête de France, uh, Seeking Forests. It seems clear enough, after all, that the single-limbed creatures were characterized by dedicated functions which they could not expect to fulfill other than in a partnership. An inbuilt tendency to seek partnerships would make obvious sense here and would explain why they were wandering around in the first place. Since the single limb beings were artfully designed by love for a purpose, of course I'm setting aside lots of things that we've been discussing this morning, um, since the single limb beings were artfully designed by love for a purpose, we must assume that she never expected them to survive for much time by themselves. She all along intended the eye, for example, to provide visual cognition for appropriately structured animals, the leg to provide locomotion, and so on. Hence, when these simple beings joined up into complex holes, were those holes in some sense presupposed by their initial design? Were the holes teleologically prior to the component limbs? If so, among Empedocles' meriological assumptions, there are anticipations here of Aristotle's metaphysics of priority, such as his characterization of the city as ontologically prior to the individual, because it's the human individual's nature to function as part of a city. But in Empedocles' case, the priority relation is more tenuous than in Aristotle, for at least two reasons. First, although love undoubtedly designed the simple organisms to be parts of complex ones, she apparently did not plan what form those complex organisms should take, but left it to chance. To that extent, there was no specifiable whole of which each limb was naturally a part. Secondly, Aristotle would, Aristotle would insist that a hand, or any other organic part, if it were ever to exist in isolation, would not really be a hand at all except by homonymy. Empedocles' view is, on the contrary, that hands, eyes, and other functional parts, endowed with their own specific functions, not only can exist in isolation, but in fact must have done so at an early stage of biological history. Hence, it's not his view that the whole is either chronologically or conceptually prior to the part. Rather, we might say, biological parts, or limbs as he usually calls them, have an inherent inclination toward becoming partners in some larger whole. No doubt love must have foreseen in general terms what the success of a complex is should be like. Their legs, if they, had, if they had them, should be even in number and underneath. The eyes paired and in front, the incisors at the front of the mouth, and so on. Nevertheless, there's no hint in the sources that love herself in stage two chose how the single-limbed beings should join up into complex creatures. 
On the contrary, as text 6 has it, uh, quote, but when divinity was mixing with divinity to a greater extent, these, and I, I assume that these means the single heads, arms, and eyes of text 3, these fell together, sum pipteston, wherever each set coincided, sum echoosem, and in addition to them, many others, i.e. further single-limbed creatures, many others came to exist as joined-up beings. In other words, the actual combinations that emerged were emphatically random ones. On the other hand, there can be no doubt that the tendency in this phase for the simple organisms to amalgamate was somehow driven by love. It's admittedly a matter of debate exactly what's meant at the beginning of text 6 by the words which I translated, when divinity was mixing with divinity to a greater extent. That daimony daimon, divinity with divinity. But it does seem likely that it describes the growing power of love over strife. And I see no problem in assuming with deals that it's these two divinities that are here referred to as daimonos. How could they mix? We might conjecture that love was depicted as seducing strife, as in the myth of Aphrodite's liaison with Ares, which Lucretius showcases in the highly Empedoclean proem to his first book. Or we might, as some have done, take the mixing, emisgeto is the Greek word, take the mixing in a more hostile sense as joining battle. But that it was love's growing influence and the simultaneously waning power of strife that accounted for the amalgamation of the simple organisms seems clear. It had been strife that kept the single limb beings apart, according to Simplicius in text 3. And in text 1, the whole process of zoogony is elaborately described as reflecting the shift in power from strife to love. I'm going to read the whole of text 1 because I think it's important background. But I shall return to the part of songs which I recited earlier, channeling one account out of another, as follows. When strife had, has reached the lowest depth of the world, and love has come to be in the middle of the eddy, in her all these things come together to be just one. Not suddenly, but willingly, that word has already been emphasized uh, by others, uh, but willingly congregating from all directions. And as they mixed, thousands of tribes of mortal beings poured forth, but many, interspersed with those that were being blended, stood unmixed, the ones which lofty strife held, uh, held back. I'm guessing that those ones are the single-lived creatures. For it had not quite blamelessly, strife that is, had not quite blamelessly stood aside at the edges of the circle. Some of its limbs remained in there, while others had departed. And to the extent that strife kept leaking out, blameless love's gentle and immortal flow kept moving in. And immediately those things grew mortal which had previously learned to be immortal, that those are, must be the elements, and those things grew to be mixed which had previously been unmixed, changing their paths. And as they mixed, now this look, mixture looks more like the joining of the single limb beings, as they mixed, thousands of tribes of mortal beings poured forth, equipped with all kinds of shapes, a wonder to behold. Now this admittedly seems to be a diachronic account combining the various stages of love zoogony, so that the growing mixture represents both the initial blending of the four elements and at a more advanced stage, the amalgamation of the single limb creatures into complex wholes. <clears throat> but it's of vital importance that at all the stages covered, the items that mixed and, and amalgamated under love's influence did so willingly. That was that word, Thelemar, um, in line six. 
What we might say then is that the single limb beings, whether or not they started out with an inherent desire for amalgamation, certainly acted on such a desire when love's power was sufficiently pervasive. On the other hand, according to Empedocles' celebrated um, partial anticipation of Darwin, uh, the resultant uh, combinations were so random as to be frequently incapable of functioning successfully, and these perished without reproducing. That's text. So I'll just read text 8 and 9. Text 8, many came to be double-faced and double-chested. Man-faced ox, progeny. Others, conversely, sprang up human-natured but ox-headed. Mixed here for men, here female-natured equipped with shadowy limbs. And of course the, the well-known passage of Aristotle which I've added as text 9. And likewise, quoting the uh, unnamed materialists, also as regards all other parts in which purpose seems to be present, where all things coincided just as if they had come to be for a purpose, these were preserved having been accidentally constituted in a viable form. For those that were non-viable used to perish and are still doing so in the way that Empedocles speaks of the, the man-faced ox progeny. The first generation of successful complex creatures, are sort of successful, I should emphasize complex creatures, ourselves included, that were formed from sets of single limb creatures, were thus in some sense the products of love, but in another sense the outcome of chance. To the extent that the evolutionary process is one whereby multiple simple organisms form a single complex organism whose own capacity for survival then becomes the determinant of success, Empedocles is offering us a story strongly analogous to the superorganism model. No doubt one should not push the analogy too far. Whereas the multiple functions constituting the activity of an ant colony can be assumed to evolve gradually thanks to a long series of random variations, the multiple functions that make up an Empedoclean complex organism come together in a single lucky accident. And of course the ants do not become welded together into a single body as Empedocles' <coughs> single-lived creatures somehow do, but are joined by their shared residence and cooperative activities. Nevertheless, both models make biological success or failure dependent on constructive collaboration between specialist members of the group. Adherents of the superorganism thesis typically see the cooperation <coughs> of the complex group as the key to both its survival and that, uh, and that of its um, individual members. And Empedocles can be taken to intend much the same when he presents the survival of the well-formed complex in terms of a move away from, di from divisive strife and towards the harmonization that love characteristically engineers. To reinforce the point that the teaming up of single speciality organisms into complex organisms reflects the growing dominance of love over strife, it's worth taking a close look at text 5. Thanks to the Strasbourg Papyrus, in which I shall follow the order of fragments proposed by Richard Yanko and um, endorsed by Oliver, we can today say that this passage, <coughs> B20 in Dios Prance, probably occurred, almost certainly occurred, at lines 302 to 308 um, of Empedocles Book 1, quite soon after he'd first introduced the main protagonist of his cosmic cycle, that's to say the four elements, love and strife, in B17. In the part of the papyrus that came just before what I've given as text 5, Empedocles has emphasized his theme on the two antithetical processes of the cosmic cycle, that is to say, the zoogony under love and the zoogony under strife. This pair of processes, also I've been persuaded by Simon Trepanier, is what Empedocles back at, not on the handout, but back at line 294, 
referred to as the coming together and the separating out of birth. That is xunodonte diapsuxinte genesleas. You can see the same expression re repeated at line 300. There, in the earlier, just the bit just earlier, he appealed to evidence for it, which he remarked there can be found by examining the many species of animal and plant that are still alive today. At line 300, the beginning of text 5, he then reiterates his promise to show Pausanias about these two antithetical phases, using the same phrase, Sunodonta diaptuks into the Genesleas, and once more he goes on to add an appeal to familiar biological phenomena as his source of evidence. This time the appeal to phenomena runs as follows, so I pick up in text 5, I'll do the whole of text 5, for you will see the coming together and the separating out of birth, dot dot dot, this is manifest in the, the mass of mortal limbs. At one time, as limbs which have been allotted to a body, we come together due to love, all into one, at the peak of a flourishing life. At another time, instead, torn apart by evil discords, they, they wander each its separate way on the shore of life. And likewise for shrubs, water-housed fish, mountain-bedded beasts, and wing-travelling fowls. Now in line 303, I have, like and the editors of the papyrus, and others in their wake, retained the first person plural, Sunechomatha, we come together, the original reading of the papyrus, which an ancient corrector changed to the neuter plural, Sunechomena, in accordance with what either was, or at any rate became, the mainstream textual tradition of Empedocles. Like others, again, I have ideas on what may have motivated the textual dispute, but don't want to get sidetracked onto that debate now, and we'll here simply assume the original reading of the papyrus to be correct. Who then are the we described here as coming together? Now here, I'm daring for the second time in one day to disagree with Oliver about something. I'm not convinced by him and others, who, perhaps, who see in this grammatical termination, Sunokomatha, who see in this a highly theorized use of the first person plural, in which we might refer to the cosmic elements. There may be other candidates, I think some that may have been suggested to Daimonos as well. I don't think we need to read it in that technical way. Empedocles' phrase, tutomenan, in the third line, that's line 302, that phrase is a signal that he's here appealing to familiar facts of nature. The identical phrase occurred just above, just before the um, text 5 started, uh, in line 296, to introduce the evidence for the double zoogamy supplied by familiar animal species. And there's a near identical usage in B76, which confirms the point. So whatever is being described in text 5 should be facts of nature supposedly already known to Pausanias. I therefore see every probability that the word we, or sorry, the um, determination in we, is a non-theoretical one, meaning you and me, that is, human beings in general. This simpler reading is in fact largely confirmed by the overall run of the passage. First, Pausanias has promised a glimpse of the two antithetical phases. So, just to repeat, for you will see the coming together and the separating out of birth. Then, following an almost entirely lost line, in 302, he offers his first illustration, the case of broteon meleon, mortal limbs, where mortal limbs actually means human limbs. This case is then spelt out, and I'll return to the details shortly, with a description of what we experience, surely implying what we humans experience. 
And that we does indeed mean humans in general is further confirmed in the last two lines where he adds that the same pattern can be found also in non-human species, plants, fish, mountain-dwelling beasts and birds. What then is this pattern in the case of humans? Well, in 305, we are limbs, we're guia, unified by love in the prime of our lives. This is clearly intended to illustrate to Pausanias the xunodos genethres, or the coming together of birth in the first line. The opposite process, the separating out of birth, the diaptuxis genethres, gain in line one, is described as follows in lines 306 to 7. Uh, sorry, that's a mistake for 305 to 6, actually. Lines 305 to 6. I read, um, at another time, instead, torn about by evil discords, they, meaning the limbs, wander each its separate way on the shore of life. These are remarkable lines. The notion of wandering takes us back to the isolated wandering limbs of text 3. Empedocles is describing human old age as a phase in which our body parts start to go their separate ways again, to lose the structural coordination that marks the prime of life. Legs and hands become unsteady, no doubt, teeth and hair fall out, eyes and ears fail to support the rest of the system adequately, and so on. I'll speak of somebody on the verge of retirement. <laughs> the successive phases of maturity and degeneration experienced in human beings, with parallels, he adds, in all animals and plants, reflect the alternating dominance of love and strife in each of us, and illustrate in miniature the alternation of these same two powers in successive cosmic phases. I've spoken of alternation here between growing love and growing strife. If old age, when our various limbs have started wandering their separate ways on the shore of life, reflects the resurgent power of strife in us, it's an obvious inference that childhood, occurring before what Empedocles here calls the peak of a flourishing life, is old age's mirror image. The infant's limbs, for example legs and tongue, are not yet coordinated, but with advancing years they gradually become so. In a way, an infant's limbs, too, are wandering on the shore of life, albeit this time on a shore on which they've just landed, rather than a shore from which they're about to set sail. We can thus start to see how, for Empedocles, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, as the saying goes. Uh, the zoogonic process by which, long ago, separate limbs came under the growing power of love to form today's species is reflected and attested in the growing unification of a human child's limbs as it matures, and likewise in the, in the maturation of other complex organisms. Correspondingly, we might conjecture, the growing disunity of the ageing organism's limbs could have as its analogue a future state of the world which strife's power will have so grown as to return those limbs to their original state of complete separation, followed, one might even further speculate, by their complete extinction, if only because they would lack the ability to reproduce. I'm not myself fully convinced that Empedocles postulated such an extreme phase of strife's domination in his cosmic cycle, but that would be a question for another occasion. An important issue that remains to address in text 5 <coughs> is precisely who is meant by we. I've already insisted that in general terms the reference is to human beings. But are we being identified with the set of limbs, whether viewed severally or collectively, 
or are we being identified with the new organism that has developed out of them? In lines 303 to 4, the we, who at certain times are found coming together to form a unity, are further identified as the limbs. But it does not straightforwardly follow that a human being or other complex organism, even when fully formed, is still nothing more than the several limbs. I say this, I'm, I'm very tentative, I really want some advice about how to read this passage, but I say it because in lines 305 to 6, when the process is reversed, the limbs are now referred to in the third person. You've got diat mea plazatai, torn about by evil discords, they wander. I'm tentatively taking this as a subtle and perhaps unconscious signal that once the organic whole has been formed, personal identity was transferred from the discrete limbs to the complex whole. Thus, when old age comes and the process is reversed, our limbs start to go their separate ways. We're the spectators of our limbs' gradual loss of coordination, but there's no suggestion here that we, the complex wholes, have surrendered our identity to. <clears throat> it's emerged that in biological history, Empedocles considers the evolution of species to be a process in which the smaller and simpler organism comes to be subsumed in the larger and more complex one, and that this unification of individual organisms in a cooperative complex is itself a working out of love's agenda. The question then arises, does this same process recur again higher up at the cosmic level? If we humans, along with oxen, trees and the like, are already, loosely speaking, superorganisms, in virtue of having emerged as new species from cooperating teams of simpler organisms, does that constitute the limit of amalgamation, or are we ourselves in turn components of a larger superorganism? More specifically, is the world itself the ultimate superorganism? This is the extreme to which the modern conception of the superorganism has been taken by some of its adherents, most notably James Lovelock, whose Gaia hypothesis treats the Earth's entire ecosystem as a single self-regulating organism. Because of the partial dominance of strife, the present world presumably can't, in Empedocles' eyes, be a fully unified entity. We've seen, for example, his concession that the degenerative process that leads to death is one manifestation of strife's continuing and perhaps even increasing interventions in biological processes. We should therefore not expect anything very closely analogous to the Gaia hypothesis to apply to the present world. It is, if anywhere, only within each successfully united organism in the prime of life that love may today be triumphant, that is, in the present world, and strife for a time excluded. On the other hand, our world in a way represents a still uncompleted development. When love finally reaches her zenith, what the totality then becomes arguably does have some claim to be called the superorganism. This is the god called Spiros. So just look at, look at the three texts, text 10, 11, 12. There neither is the shining form of the sun discerned, nor the shaggy might of the earth, nor the sea. So dense is the covering of harmony by which it is held fast, <coughs> round Spiros enjoying his blissful solitude. Text 11. But equal to himself on all sides, and altogether unbounded, round Spiros enjoying his blissful solitude. Text 12. For there is no pair of branches issuing from his back, no feet, no swift knees, no generative organs. 
After certain very long intervals, love achieves total dominance, and the universe becomes, and thereafter long remains, a single blissful God. Because the universe is spherical, this universe God is given the name Spiros, the unique masculine derivative of Spira probably being Empedocles' own coinage. In being grammatically masculine, this God, this God stands apart from the feminine love, Philotes, and the neuter God, Strive, Nakos. But despite his masculine gender, Spiros lacks male genitalia in text 12. Why so? Biologically speaking, it's no doubt because he is extremely long-lived and has no need to reproduce. Compared to long-lived daimons, of whom Empedocles himself is one in B115, and to whom he almost certainly recommended sexual abstention to judge from a passage in Hippolytus. At another level, that was the biological level, but at another level, Spiros's lack of genitalia is the mark of divine self-sufficiency. As later spelt out in, in much more explicit detail in Plato's Timaeus, 33-4, a created divinity who is himself the entire universe has no need of our familiar asymmetric appendages, arms, legs, mouth, and so on. Such asymmetries are indispensable for imperfectly self-sufficient beings such as ourselves, condemned to constantly interacting with our environment by travelling through it, ingesting food, excreting, copulating, warding off dangers, and so on. But a living being identical with the entire universe has no corresponding needs, there being nothing external to it. And because Empedocles' universe God has no need for asymmetries, he remains perfectly symmetrical, in other words, spherical, thus earning his name. <coughs> His lack of male genitalia is in a sense coordinate with the other absences. The text 12 also lists, by way of example, his lack of wings, if, if that's how a pair of branches issuing from his back is to be understood, feet and knees. What is this universe God like? Viewed geographically, as in text 10, he does not have his four constituent elements separated into discrete cosmic masses. There's no separate sea, sun or earth. In this respect, he does not resemble Plato's universe god, who, although spherical on the outside, has a complex cosmic structure on the inside. Hence, Empedocles' spherical god is often inferred, I've done it myself uh, in the past, is often inferred to be a perfect blend of the four elements. And that, if so, would make him a ball of a single homogeneous stuff, probably blood. However, any such inference faces an obstacle in text 13, and probably text 14, although the reference there is less clear, where at the end of this blissful era, the renewed onset of strife is said to affect the limbs of the universe god. If he has limbs, he's not, after all, a homogeneous soup, but a complex organism with multiple organic parts. This is where it becomes important to recall an earlier finding, that the plural limbs in Empedocles really does refer to a set of distinct organic parts, and not to the singular frame or body, as it's, it's often slightly reductively taken here. Certain further speculations now become hard to resist. Has Spiros come into being as love's unification of originally separate organisms, in a way that mirrors our own species' evolution out of originally separate, single-limb beings? If so, what, or perhaps I should say who, are the limbs? Are we ourselves subsumed into Spiros as his organic parts? If we are, 
it may be assumed that in him we lose our separate identity, much as our own limbs too lose their individual identity, or lost their individual identity, I should say, when they joined up into the complex organisms that we currently are. We must recall too from text 5 that in animals and plants, the process of unification of limbs can go into reverse whenever strife gets the upper hand. So it might be asked, when the unified sphere is finally broken up by strife, will beings like us re-emerge as the separate organisms they previously were, perhaps to be subjected to eventual further separation into male and female under strife zoogamy? This possibility that organisms such as ourselves might survive through the long age of Spiros in the guise of his limbs ha has in the past been advocated by Laura Gemelli Marciano to my total disbelief, but it now seems to me increasingly plausible. <laughs> Leaving these speculations aside as too tenuous to pursue any further, it seems appropriate to end instead by revisiting the growing influence of love. Initially, to recall, Individual biological materials like flesh and bone are created by love, not as self-sufficient entities, but to constitute the simplest organism, such as hands, legs and eyes. Those simple organisms, in their turn, are condemned to leading a miserable twilight existence until they succeed in teaming up and forming complex structures comparable to superorganisms. Finally, when the process of harmonization is complete, there will be just one global complex organism, the ideally blissful spirals. This final culmination of love's powers can easily enough be understood as drawing its inspiration from Parmenidean metaphysics or from a Xenophanian theological tradition. But the picture I've been piecing together gives more prominence to a biological motivation. Love is a force that, for Empedocles, manifests itself above all in the way familiar complex organisms bring into partnership discrete limbs with diverse functions. Functioning on their own, those limbs had little chance of surviving and prospering, but the more they amalgamated, the more self-sufficient the resulting amalgam became. A biological picture like this is already enough to ground Empedocles' prediction that if and when love comes to dominate the entire universe, the result will be a single, perfectly self-sufficient global organism within which any surviving lesser organisms will be reduced to the function of limbs. I'll stop there. Thank you.